Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Three, two, one. But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet what is on the phone. Here we are. Here we are. Here we are. Here we Hope everybody's doing well. Uh, first off, want to apologize for a little bit of the bizarre taping schedule this week. Sunday, I felt like we had to get out Monday's show early because of the Coach O news. Wednesday's show a little bit late. I actually went to the Dodgers-Braves game three on Tuesday. Got a last-minute ticket. Couldn't turn it down. It was a great game, by the way. I hope you guys all enjoyed and watched. Uh, so late Wednesday episode, I promise Friday we will be back on a normal schedule. Next week, we will be back on a normal schedule. Some of you have asked me what's going on with the schedule. I'm telling you right now. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, that's how we're doing it going forward, people. But with that said, loaded show, lot to get into. I want to open very briefly with the Nick Rolovich situation at Washington State. You guys know I don't like talking non-sports things, but obviously a non-sports thing has come into the sports world with Nick Rolovich refusing to get the vaccine, getting fired at Washington State. And I do believe that whether, you know, we want to talk about this or not, I do believe I will bring a fair and balanced perspective to this topic. Hope you'll give me a chance to explain kind of my opinion on things. From there, we will get to an LSU coaching update. That is right. We have some new names have emerged over the last couple days, including one of the biggest names in college football. I also think we may have a leader that I was not anticipating, so I will give you an update on the LSU coaching search. We will transition from there to college basketball. The first AP poll is out of the year. I'll tell you who's overrated, who's underrated, all that good stuff. And finally, we will wrap with a little where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong, America's favorite podcast segment. With that said, though, let's get into the topic of the day. And the topic of the day is what's going on at Washington State with head coach Nick Rolovich. And as I just said moments ago, I don't want to belabor this point. I don't want to spend too much time on it. And I know that you come here for a few things. One, you do come here for sports commentary. I do always try to, as, they old, as the old saying goes, stick to sports. There are enough serious topics in the world outside of what I do, and I try to give you 45 minutes or an hour of reprieve from that space, allow us to have fun and talk sports. But unfortunately, sometimes the sports world collides with some more serious issues, and this is one of them as Nick Rolovich, head coach at Washington State. He was, I'm almost certain, the highest paid state employee in the state of Washington. He was fired on Monday for refusing to get vaccinated, refusing to comply with a Washington state law that required that all federal employees, all state employees, all employees of universities such as Washington State get the vaccine. Very interesting topic, very fascinating timeline on this as we knew it was coming for a while. What's interesting about this one was if you even peripherally follow college football, this was a car crash that you could see coming from miles away. 
We knew er as early as the beginning to middle of August that Nick Rolovich was not vaccinated uh, because Pac-12 media days required that every single person in attendance show proof of vaccination. He did not come to Pac-12 media days. He was asked about it at Pac-12 media days and made it clear that he was not vaccinated and he was not planning on getting vaccinated going forward. He was pressed on why he wouldn't really give a reason. And from there, it was kind of just this thing that was hanging over Washington State. But then it escalated over the past couple months when uh, the state of, uh, state of Washington basically required, again, all federal employees, all state employees to get a vaccination. He continued to refuse. He uh, put in an exemption for a religious or medical exemption without giving very many details. And on Monday was the day that we found out who got approved, who didn't for those religious and medical exemptions. Nick Rolovich was not one of them, and he was fired with cause at Washington State uh, for refusing to get vaccinated, as well as several of his assistants. And so what I want to do now is go ahead and, and just give you a few thoughts on this. And again, I hope you understand. I don't love to get non-sports, but this is sort of a sports topic that has bled into the real world. And what I do hope is that at the very least, I will give you, I believe, balanced and fair perspective on this Nick Rolovich situation. And I'll tell you this. I say it all the time. There can be two sides to every story. I think in this case, there are three, four, five, six sides to the Nick Rolovich story. So first of all, what I would say is this. In general, in life, I am freedom of choice. If that makes me unpopular with you, I'm sorry. But I truly do believe that uh, you know individuals, humans, should have the choice on what they put into their bodies. And I don't want to spend too much time on this, I swear. I am freedom of choice. Let the record show, by the way, I do myself have a vaccination. I did get vaccinated. I thought it was the right thing to do for the people around me. But I do believe that other humans should not be required if they do not feel comfortable uh, to get the vaccine if they don't want to. couple thoughts on that. One, I know there's this lingering thought of, well, vaccinations are required for measles, for mumps, for this, for that. What I would say, you guys know, you probably already have, have had these conversations with friends and family. Those vaccines have been around 20, 30, 40 years. This is a new vaccine that was just rolled off. The assembly line and anyone who has hesitation, I do not disrespect you for deciding to wait and do your own research and do your own homework and see if there are any long-term side effects. I don't have to agree. I don't have to disagree, but I respect your opinion for freedom of choice. On top of that, what I would also say when I put something out on social media the other day, uh, I saw a bunch of people say, uh, yeah, but he's a, he's a human health code. He, you know, he's putting everybody at risk. That's not how vaccines work. You don't get the flu shot uh, to put other people at risk. You get the flu shot to protect yourself. All of his players have the vaccine because they're required to to play at Washington State. And so him not getting the vaccine, the only person that he's really putting at risk is himself. We now have indisputable data that, oh, by the way, the people that now, you know, we now have indisputable data. The people that are most, you know, most at risk of serious symptoms, serious side effects, serious long-term health effects, hospitalization, et cetera, are the unvaccinated. So at the end of the day, the person he is putting at risk, hims, uh, the, the person he is putting at risk the most by not getting vaccinated is himself. While I am freedom of choice, I would also say this. Like I said, there's two sides to every story. I also understand an individual employer's right to make requirements of their employees. Um, I know this was a state mandate, so that's a little bit different. Not necessarily a huge fan of that. But I do understand that employers have a different responsibility to their employees. I am now a, a business owner, Aaron Torres Media, Aaron Torres Online. I have employees. At the same time, we don't have an office, so I don't have to make any tough decisions on a vaccine mandate. I would not require it personally. But as an employer, you have to make tough decisions uh, that are for the good of your entire company, even if at the same time it is not good for individual employees, okay? So I understand this is a little bit of a different deal, but I want to differentiate that I do understand and I do see both sides to this topic. One, I am in favor of freedom of choice. Two, I do understand that individual employers should have the right uh, to require in, you know, uh, things of their employees. It is why I toe the line with Kyrie Irving in the NBA, 
I respect Kyrie Irving like heck for making the decision not to get vaccinated, but I understand the NBA requiring, you know, making it as stringent as possible. They don't actually require it, but they're making it basically impossible for anybody who is unvaccinated. I understand. And so it's personal choice. If you want to get it, great. If you don't, I understand the decision-making process behind it. At the same time, I understand an individual employer's right to make individual employees, uh, you know, do certain things for the good of the company as a whole. Now, as it pertains to Rolovich, I do think there are two very distinct sides on his story as well. First of all, what I would say, even though I am freedom of choice, I'm not going to completely let him off the hook either, and let me explain why. Um, And it's really interesting because I remember dating back to the Pac-12 media day when we found out that he did not have this vaccine. I remember talking to my old radio partner, Arnie Spanier, about this on air. I said, I am in favor of, I am pro, I am freedom of choice. I believe if you don't want to get it, you shouldn't have to get it. But I do believe, this is where I, I, I am a little frustrated with Nick Rolovich. Nick Rolovich is the highest paid state employee in the state of Washington. On top of that, he is a coach. What do we always hear coaches say about themselves? I am a leader of young men. I am turning these boys into men. He went into the homes of parents and said, um, you know, I'm going to take care of your son. So while I respect his freedom of choice to not get the vaccine, I am a little frustrated that he has never explained why he has chosen not to get the vaccine. I'm not saying that he needs to be required to do so. Clearly, even if he is, he's not doing it. But at the same time, I do kind of look at it from the perspective that, man, come on now. You're going to go up here. You're going to go on the podium and talk about I'm a leader of men. I care about these kids more than anything. And you won't tell us why you won't get it. And maybe there's a legitimate reason why. But when you don't give reasons, it gives, um, you know, it, it gives people reason to speculate. And people, uh, you know, how do I say this? It gives reason for people to speculate and for people to put words in your mouth, right? It, it, it's a totally abstract comparison. But think about the Ben Simmons deal right now. We don't know what's going on with Ben Simmons because he refuses to say, so we're only getting one side of the story right now. And maybe if Ben Simmons actually explained his side of the story, we would feel a little bit different. But he won't talk, he won't speak, he won't defend himself. And so because of it, we think Ben Simmons looks like a, frankly, a punk right now, right? And it's kind of the same with Nick Rolovich. If you don't give us the truth, if you don't give us an explanation, and maybe there is a good explanation... Um, you know, we're left to guess and it doesn't work out well looking. It doesn't work out you looking good in general. Finally, on the flip side with Nick Rolovich, what I would say, while I would have liked an explanation, what I will also say is I give him a ton of credit because he clearly believes in something. He clearly has his reason for refusing to get it. And he's one of the few people, him and Kyrie Irving are basically it, one of two people that's willing to give up millions for what they believe in. And I even believe that Nick Rolovich is in a little bit of a different situation where Kyrie Irving's going to play basketball again. Kyrie Irving, by the way, is still being paid for road games because the Nets cannot dock him his pay because he's eligible to play in those games and they just refuse to pay him. So Kyrie Irving's getting basically half of his salary. Nick Rolovich ain't getting any of his salary, and he will probably never be a head coach in college football again at the level that he is making the money that he is. And so I do give him credit for standing up in what he believes in, fighting for what he believes in, and being willing to sacrifice everything for his beliefs. The one thing that has frustrated me about this athlete empowerment movement of the last five, six, seven, eight, ten years, whatever it is, I have no problem with athletes standing up for what they believe in. But do you ever notice how everything that every athlete believes in are things that basically universally uh, are approved by everybody, right? Like, like it's every I've said it a million times. No one is in favor of police brutality. So to come out and say we're against police brutality, that isn't a strong stance. That's a stance that everybody has. Whereas, oh, by the way, there are multiple basketball players that have sneaker deals with China, and I'm not trying to get political, but what I'm saying is somebody could draw the line in the sand and say, I do not like what is going on in China right now. And if you actually read about it, it's pretty scary. I do not like what's going on in China right now. Nobody's done it because nobody wants to give up millions. So all I'm saying is credit to Nick Rolovich for truly being willing to give up millions for something he believes in. All of these athletes, coaches, this, that, that claim that they believe in something. The second it comes to their pocketbook, their bottom line, their paycheck, nobody really seems to be willing to stand for anything anymore except for Nick Rolovich and Kyrie Irving. So I give them both credit in this case. 
Last thought I would say, and I swear I just want to talk football. I don't want to spend too much more time on this. Um, the frust- my, my, my biggest frustration, and something I tweeted about, is this. Is the coverage of Nick Rolovich by the media. And you know that while I consider myself in the media, I also look at a lot of people in the media, and I just think a lot of them are pretentious, they're fake, they're schmucks, and I don't think there is a better example than this story right here, okay? There are a lot of coaches that do a lot worse than choose not to get vaccinated. Uh, You know, I put it out on Twitter. We've had coaches arrested for driving drunk. We've had coaches arrested for spousal abuse. We've had coaches arrested for, uh, you know, uh, uh, adultery. We've had, not not, not arrested, but immorally uh, uh, adultery. We've had coaches arrested for, uh, you know, not arrested again, but but morally are womanizers. You know, there's a lot of different things that coaches do and don't do that either ethically, immorally, or legally, and we don't seem to care, right? Bobby Petrino crashes his motorcycle with his mistress and it becomes a joke and it becomes a meme. Well, what's worse? Putting your entire, you know, putting, uh, you know, ask Bobby Petrino's wife, which is worse. Bobby Petrino not getting a vaccine or Bobby Petrino getting caught with a 22-year-old on the back of his motorcycle. And so what bothers me is that the, the media continues to choose what to get outraged about and what not to get outraged about. I talked about it on Monday's show with the Tennessee stuff. I'm not saying that Tennessee fans had a moment in the sun on Saturday night, but the outrage I saw from some media while also defending other actions by other fan bases and other people like Give me a freaking break. And it's the same with Nick Rolovich. He doesn't want to get the vaccine. I, I, you know, he doesn't want to get the vaccine. That is his personal decision. He is willing to lose his job over it. But let's not act like, he, you know, he pulled a knife on somebody or whatever. As I said from the beginning, um, you know, the person that's obviously most at danger, I believe at this point, is Nick Rolovich. And so I want to get off the topic. But I will say I do give him credit. There's a lot of people that say they believe in something, that say they stand for something. Then it comes to losing money. Then it comes to losing salary. Then it comes to losing your job, and they back off. And they take, you know, they kind of do whatever they got to do to get back in the good graces of whomever they have to get in, in the good graces of. So I don't know that I agree with Nick. I, I, I'm still kind of stunned that he really did refuse to do it. I am stunned that he is suing the school now, that he will probably never be a head coach in major college football again. But I do give him credit for standing for something. All right, that's what I want to do. I want to take a quick break. I want to come back, uh, and I do want to talk a little LSU because obviously on Sunday I reacted a ton to LSU, and since then there have been some major marquee new candidates emerge. I still believe the Jimbo Fisher, Lane Kiffin, James Franklin trio is probably the leaders in the clubhouse, but I bring it up to say we got some new names and some very interesting names, and I do want to discuss them coming up. All right, everybody, I'm back. Good to be back. Good to be back. And I do want to switch gears. I do want to talk about a pseudo on the topic, on the field topic. And that is the head coaching job at LSU and some updates that have come since Sunday's show. And I know that some of you are probably tired of talking LSU. It seems like every episode I have talked LSU to some degree over the last couple weeks. But the bottom line remains this. This is one of the single best head coaching jobs in college football, if not the best job, It is now open, there is a national search, there is no super obvious candidate, and it is clear that this is going to be a true search. This isn't going to be Ohio State opens and then an hour later Ryan Day gets the head coaching job. Oklahoma opens and then an hour later Lincoln Riley gets the head coaching job. This is going to be a two-month process where I don't believe LSU is going to have its next head coach in place probably until the middle of December when the regular season ends, and it is going to be fascinating the twists and turns that come with it. What I would say on top of that, we have new information since I recorded on Sunday. And to take you behind the curtain a little bit, Sunday morning, I'm prepping the show, I'm doing what I do, and the Coach O bombshell drops. And I know you guys want a show right away. So I put out the show on Sunday, and what has happened since then is a few things. I've talked to some people, I've, uh, you know, I, I, I've done more homework. Obviously, when the first thing happens, you're sitting there, just immediate reaction, go, go, go a million miles an hour. Then you have time to step back. You have time to call people you trust. You have time to connect with people that you trust. And all of a sudden, what I'll tell you is this. I still believe that those top three names are the three biggest names in in this coaching search, Jimbo Fisher, Lane Kiffin, and James Franklin. But I believe that some other names have absolutely emerged. I believe there may be a new leader overall for the job. 
and that there's a mega name that has been linked to it, and so I want to discuss it. In terms of the names that are new, and I would, again, use the caveat, I do believe James Franklin, Lane Kiffin, Jimbo Fisher, in some order are the top three candidates. We will not talk about them because I've talked about them plenty over the last couple weeks. You can go back and listen to Sunday, Monday's episode to hear what I have to say about them. But there are some new names. The first one, Mel Tucker, head coach, Michigan State. And it's really interesting because one of these online offshore sports books put out odds the second the LSU head coaching job opened up. Mel Tucker was about the seventh or eighth, you know, longest odds to get the job. By Tuesday, he was the leader in the clubhouse, which means that a lot of money was coming in on Mel Tucker. Somebody somewhere is betting a lot of money that Mel Tucker will be the next head coach at LSU. In terms of why, first of all, and I would also say that is backed up by pretty much every major reporter saying, look, we don't know if he's ahead of Jimbo Fisher. We don't know if he's ahead of Lane Kiffin. But this guy is a real name in the, in the coaching search that you have to keep an eye on. And so what makes Mel Tucker a candidate at LSU? First of all, his team this year is awesome. Michigan State is 7-0 this year. They are ranked in the top 10. They are entering the toughest part of their schedule. But to Mel Tucker's credit, he's flipped that program around really quick. And Michigan State, you know, they, they, they have an identity. They're doing it, uh, you know, the right way, run the ball, defense, all that stuff. And this looks like a program that is very much on the rise. Again, they're 7-0. To Mel Tucker's credit, and I think this is something that will probably appeal to LSU, he has been very aggressive in the transfer portal. In other words, this is not a Mel Tucker, when he got the Michigan State job, did not view this as a three to five to seven year rebuild where we're going to do it the right way. We're going to do it the old fashioned way. We're going to build and develop. And No, I'm being paid a lot of money to win games now at Michigan State, and I am going to do that. He is seven and zero. The team is playing well. They have an identity, and there's a few other things working for him. One, he's from the Saban coaching tree. You can argue, you can debate, you can discuss. That matters in college football. We all know that. Kirby Smart, Lane Kiffin, Steve Sarkeesian, Mike Loxley. Um, you know, you go on and on and on down the list. All these guys get other opportunities. I take that back. All, being a Saban assistant matters, okay? And Mel Tucker does come from that Saban coaching tree. He coached with Nick Saban at Alabama for a few years. It's worth noting that he coached at LSU a few years before. And I think what LSU is looking at is saying, look, youngish coach, he's 49 years old, already has built Michigan State. Imagine what he could potentially do at our school. And oh, by the way, I would also say on top of that, and I think this is important, I talked about on Sunday's show how there are real off-the-field issues at LSU. There's an NCAA investigation going on. There's a Title IX investigation that Coach O wasn't directly implicated in, but it did not look good. And I do think that does remove some candidates with more checkered histories. Mel Tucker's squeaky clean because he's only been a head coach for about three years. And so those are the positives. Really good coach, really identifiable you know, identity within that Michigan State program. And oh, by the way, he is winning at an insane level, has Michigan State in the top 10 in year two, has hit the portal hard. And I think LSU is looking at him and saying, if he could do that in two years at Michigan State, what could he do at LSU? Here's where I would hesitate if I was LSU on Mel Tucker. One, I don't know how good Michigan State is. And that's no disrespect. But here's the bottom line. Michigan State is 7-0, and but their entire reputation is built off of a win over, um, a win over Miami early in the season. In that game, they won 38-17. to It was a great, dominant win, sort of. That was a 24-17 to game with eight minutes to go before they scored two touchdowns late. And so it was a one-possession game. It could have swung the other way. Miami, as I record right now, is currently 2-4. and four. They're banged up. I don't know how much what Manny Diaz, how much trouble he's in. But I just bring it up to say, Michigan State's whole reputation is off of beating a really bad Miami team. On top of that, what I would also say, barely survived against Nebraska, won in overtime, easily could have lost that game, and also last week could have lost at Indiana. And so now Michigan State is on a bye, but their final five games of the season, they play Michigan at home, at Purdue, which is now a top 25 team, at Ohio State, and at Penn State. Maybe Mel Tucker goes 4-1 and one in those games, and they finish 11-1, and one, and he emerges as the coach of the year nationally and as a legitimate candidate at LSU, but I think it's more likely they go 2-3 and three down the stretch. And he's a good coach, and the program is on the rise, but they're not there yet. I am just saying it feels a little bit presumptuous. There are other factors, $5.5 million salary at Michigan State. You're going to have to pay him a lot of money. But I think at the end of the day, what this comes down to is a few things. Is 
how how good is Michigan State? Have they played the easy part of their schedule? How good do they look against those elite programs in college football? You know, you lose 47 to 6 to Ohio State, it changes the trajectory of if they can bring you in as the head coach at LSU. So that's something to monitor. I give him credit. He's turning it around quick. And I do think he'd take the job. Listen, I, I see a lot of Michigan State fans like, oh, he would never leave after one year or two years. Well, he left Colorado to go to Michigan State after one year, so I don't see why he wouldn't do the same to go to LSU, which is clearly a superior job. Something to monitor going forward. The second name that is kind of new, I did talk about him a little bit on Sunday's show. It's Luke Fickle at Cincinnati. And and a couple things here. I think Cincinnati fans are convinced Luke Fickle is not leaving Cincinnati for any job other than Midwest Big Ten national championship caliber jobs and it's interesting I bring up Luke Fickle after Mel Tucker because if you remember when Mark D'Antonio left Michigan State in the uh, whatever it was February of 2020 right before COVID uh, and by the way I should mention with Mel Tucker too it's worth noting struggled in year one but there was COVID there was no spring practice there was no nothing so he is showing what he can do with a full offseason that is a credit to Mel Tucker but that said The number one candidate for Michigan State in that coaching search was Luke Fickle, and Luke Fickle turned him down. And so I do believe there's this belief that Luke Fickle will only leave for an elite job in the Midwest footprint. He is from Ohio. He coached at Ohio State. He coached, uh, um, you know, uh, for a brief time, like one year at Akron, but that he's essentially a Midwest guy. He's only spent one year outside of Ohio in his entire coaching career. And so the only jobs that he's going to leave for are potentially Ohio State, Notre Dame, Maybe Michigan, but even Michigan, he's an Ohio State guy. Is he really going to go to Michigan? Maybe Penn State, but is he really going to go to Penn State? Or can he really? Does he really believe he can compete at an Ohio State level at Penn State? And so the pool of jobs that most people believe he will consider leaving is very small. What I would also say is a couple things. One, I've said it a million times. Scott Woodward is a big game hunter. Scott Woodward has Scott Woodward is LSU's AD, and he has done a. a he's convinced better candidates to leave better jobs under better circumstances than Luke Fickle. He convinced Jimbo Fisher to leave Florida State after three, four years after winning a national championship to go to Texas A&M. It is not inconceivable that Scott Woodward gets in front of this guy, explains who he is, explains what he is about, explains how much LSU matters to him. Scott Woodward is from Baton Rouge. He loves the university and says, you're the only choice. Come, come here, fix this program. Also worth noting, the only place that, uh, that Luke Fickle, and I mentioned this on Sunday's show, has lived outside of Louisiana, or outside of Ohio, is Louisiana for one year when he played for the Saints. So he's at least somewhat familiar. And what I would also tell you is a couple other things. One, when it first became clear LSU was not going to keep Coach O at Orgeron beyond this year, a couple things. You know, I put out that, that, that you know, post on, uh, you know, that podcast where I talked about Jimbo, Lane Kiffin, and James Franklin. I had a lot of people behind the scenes reach out to me and say, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but just keep an eye on Luke Fickle. Like people, some people that matter, some people that don't, but there seems to be a lot more Luke Fickle talk than I thought. And I don't think that Luke Fickle talk comes out of nowhere if there is no chance that he takes the job. Now, I know he's going to say all the right things. I know he's going to do all the right things. And I do think while some candidates make more sense at USC than LSU, I think James Franklin might be one of them. I don't know that Luke Fickle is that guy. I think he's a football guy. I think he's a grinder. I think he'd bring discipline to that program. And the record speaks for itself as far as Luke Fickle is concerned. Um, you know, obviously they're six and zero this year, ranked number two in the country, nine and one last year, eleven and three, eleven and two in twenty nineteen and twenty eighteen. And the final thing I would say about Luke Fickle is, look, we've been under this impression he is only going to leave for jobs where he can win a national championship, win multiple national championships, compete for multiple national championships. LSU is one of those jobs. And so while he doesn't necessarily fit kind of from a culture perspective or from the geography, he seems to make more sense in other places. I'll just tell you, LSU is one of the few jobs that when they call, you got to listen, right? When they call, you got to pick up. I say it all the time. But John Calipari, I interviewed him one time about why did you leave Memphis for Kentucky when you did? And he said, look, it was Kentucky. When Kentucky calls, you pick up the phone. And that's kind of how I feel about LSU. And I kind of feel like this is one where, yeah, probably not the perfect match, maybe not the first choice, but one I heard way too much buzz early on in the process before Coach O was even let go to think that it's nothing. 
And then two on top of that, what I would also say is that, um, you know, LSU is just different, man. This isn't Michigan State. This isn't Minnesota. This isn't um, Mississippi State. This is a place where you can win mega, mega, mega huge over the course of many seasons. And I think he's a real candidate for this job. Third guy, and I'll start to wrap up here. I got two other names. First one. Dave Aranda, the head coach at Baylor. And for people who do not know Dave Aranda, who he is, widely regarded as one of the best defensive coordinators for many years in college football. Uh, He is now the head coach at Baylor. And of course, he was the defensive coordinator on LSU's national championship team in 2019 with Joe Burrow. And so it's really funny. I was thinking about this over the last few days. Uh, Over the last couple of years, as things have started to fall apart at LSU with Coach O, Everyone has said it was all Joe Burrow and it was all the offensive savant guru, Joe Brady, who is now the Carolina Panthers offensive coordinator. Those are the guys that led to the success of that national championship team. The more you talk to people, the more they say, you know who had a bigger role than any of you guys in the media are giving credit for? Dave Aranda. Dave Aranda was the defensive coordinator. That defense wasn't statistically incredible, but that was because the offense scored so many points that defense was on the field a lot. Um, But beyond that, it's also what's interesting is this. Since Dave Aranda left, the program fell apart in the same way that Joe Brady and Joe Burrow. But what everyone says is that Dave Aranda was kind of the culture guy that kept things together behind the scenes. He was the good cop to Coach O's bad cop. He was the guy that players could trust and confide in when they couldn't trust and confide in Coach O. In a lot of ways, it reminds me when Urban Meyer, when it started to fall apart at Florida, It coincided with when Charlie Strong left to take over as the head coach of Louisville. And so I bring it up because he is getting a lot of steam of, you know, he's the culture guy. He's the guy that the players trusted. He's the guy that the players liked. And if you want to reestablish the culture more than anything of not only winning football, but accountability as LSU increasingly has had more off the field issues, more arrests, more opt outs, more misses in recruiting. This is the guy to go after. It's also worth noting, uh, Baylor, like Michigan State, is awesome this year. 6-1, and one, ranked in the top 25. Also like Michigan State, it is Dave Aranda's second year at Baylor. And you kind of have to disregard that first year. Mel Tucker, obviously, we give a ton of pass. We give him a, a, a pass for year one at Michigan State for obvious reasons. There was no offseason, COVID, and look at what he's doing in year two with a full offseason. Baylor, it's the same deal with Dave Aranda, has him 6-1 and one ranked in the top 25. And by the way, you talk about a way to audition for that LSU job. They play Oklahoma State, which is currently ranked in the top 10 this week and are actually a small favorite in that game. All right, final name in the LSU head coaching search, and you guys are going to get a kick out of this. But there is a name that has been linked to this head coaching job that will blow your mind. It's Dabo Sweeney, head coach, Clemson University. I don't think it's going to happen. I think there's obvious reasons why his name is being linked. But what I would tell you is this. When someone's name like this is linked to a job, when he seemingly would never leave that job for anywhere else, there's always something to it. Dabo Sweeney's name wasn't on any list to start, and now it's suddenly coming up. What does it mean? Why is it there? Whatever. It's worth noting Dabo Sweeney, like Jimbo Fisher, on Tuesday was asked about it, and he has denied interest. In terms of why it makes sense, let's just put it out there. I said it a minute ago. Scott Woodward is a big game hunter. I've said it multiple times this week. Scott Hunter treats every uh, Scott uh, Scott Woodward treats every coaching search like a fan would. He goes for the biggest, baddest names and makes him say no. I think I used the example on Saturday on Sunday show. You know how like you check a a a, a a message board for your favorite team when there's a coaching search and there's some ridiculous, absurd name and you say, "Come on." You know, come on, uh, Bulldog fan, 88. Um, you know, Nick Saban ain't leaving Alabama for Mississippi State. Calm down, okay? Like, but that's how Scott Woodward approaches his coaching searches. I'll figure out the money. I'll figure out the money. I'll figure out everything. I will give you everything you want. Now come come with me. And so why it makes sense for Dabo is a few reasons. One, Scott Woodward's going to give him any and everything that he wants. Dabo already gets it at Clemson, but on top of that, it is worth noting, by the way, that Clemson, that Clemson is not playing very well right now. And so Scott Woodward may be sneaking the side door the way that he did with Jimbo Fisher at Florida State. Hey, Jimbo, 
We know things aren't going well here at Florida State. They don't appreciate you. They don't respect you. You won them a national championship. Come here to Texas A&M where we're going to love you and we're going to throw rose petals at your feet. Could he be doing the same thing for Dabo Sweeney? I think it's absolutely in the cards. Now, what I would also say, this feels, and I talked about John Calipari a minute ago, this feels like a, a play out of John Calipari's playbook. This feels like Calipari 101 and how to conduct yourself when a big job opens up. Calipari does this once every couple years. And Kentucky fans get mad every single time that his name is linked to a job. You know who's doing that linking? It's not just us in the media. Sometimes Calipari wants Kentucky fans to know, hey, wait a second now. I know you guys love me. I know you guys talk about how great I am. But you, I, I see your tweets. I hear your frustration. And I'm just saying, I'm going to wait a day or two before I deny interest in this coaching job, this NBA job, the UCLA head coaching job. I just want you guys to know that I have options. You think I'm going to be here forever, Kentucky fans. Just know I have options. UCLA wants me. They're going to give me half the university. They're going to name uh, half the buildings in, this, in, the, uh, you know, in Westwood after me. I think that's what Dabo Sweeney's doing here. I think his name is out there for a reason. I don't think it's a coincidence. And what I believe is he just wants to let Clemson fans know. I know we're struggling. I know we're not living up to the standard that I have set at this program. But you guys want to talk about me on the message boards? You want to tell me how to run my program? You want to say I missed on this kid and that kid in recruiting? I need to change this coordinator to that coordinator? Well, let me tell you. Just know I got options. And oh, by the way, we're four and two. But I got options, baby. And I, the, me signing a contract to be the head coach at Clemson, that is not a lifetime appointment. I am not a king or a monarch. I can bounce anytime I want and somebody else might want me. Dabo says he's not interested. I believe he's not going to leave Clemson. But I think he is going to let his name linger out there just a little while longer just to let everybody at Clemson know. All right, I think that's it on LSU. This is what I want to do. Take a quick break, come back. First AP College Hoops poll came out this week. I want to talk AP College Hoops. I want to wrap on where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong, and then we'll get out of here because this show is shaping up to be an all-timer. All right, everybody, I am back, going to be back, going to be back, and I do want to switch gears, and I do want to do something that I am doing a lot more than I expected this fall, and that is talk college hoops. And I know I say it every week, but it's the truth. I love college hoops. I love college hoops. But when we hit about the middle of August, whatever it was, I said, look, guys and girls, because we have a lot of ladies that listen to the podcast, and I love and respect you too. But I said, listen, guys and girls, I said it is now college football time. We are not going to be talking a ton of college basketball over these next three, four, five, six weeks. And sure enough, something has happened every week where I have no choice but to talk college basketball. Shaden Sharp commits to Kentucky. Chris Livingston commits to Kentucky. Derek Lively commits to Duke. Jaden Bradley commits to Alabama. Nick Smith, Jordan Walsh commit to Arkansas. We had the first week of practice, which I discussed. Every single week, there is something happening at college basketball, and I'm talking about it on this show. So I bring it up to say that once again, something has happened, and it is further proof that we are getting very close to the start of college basketball season. And what happened is this. We had our first AP poll drop on Monday afternoon. And if you want a sign that we are getting close to college basketball season, it is the first AP poll dropping, and this is what I want to do. I want to do some initial reaction, and then what I will do is go through five teams that I believe were overrated or underrated, maybe even get to six or seven, that I believe were either overrated or underrated in the first AP poll, uh, and we'll talk about it, right? And we'll discuss and we'll debate, and I did do an article about this at AaronTorresOnline.com. If you want to go and read it, what I would say is before we get to the overrated and underrated, let's get to the top 10 from the AP poll. And let me say this, shout out to the AP because they are very clearly reading all my content and listening to this podcast. The AP top 10 is almost identical to the most recent top 10 that I did after Amani Bates committed to Memphis, which was at the end of August. Here is the AP top 10 and then I will give you my personal AT top 10. AP Top 10, Gonzaga number one, UCLA number two, Kansas number three, Villanova number four, Texas number five, Michigan six, Purdue seven, Baylor eight, Duke nine, Kentucky 10. Now here's my top 10 coming out of the summer. UCLA one, 
Gonzaga 2, Texas 3, Villanova 4, Kansas 5. So the same exact top five as the AP I have as well. Purdue at 6, Kentucky 7, Duke 8, Michigan 9, Arkansas 10. And so when I talk about overrated, underrated, I'm not going to spend too much time on that top 10 tier group of teams because ultimately all the teams that I had in there except for one are also in the top 10. For those who are interested, the team that I had, I had Arkansas at number 10. The AP had Baylor at number eight. And even Baylor at number eight, I had them at number 11. So it's not as though I feel like it's some egregious overstep to put the reigning national champions in that top 10. Beyond them, I would, I would nitpick a few things. I think UCLA should be a pretty consensus number one. I don't ever remember a scenario where we had a team that went to the Final Four, came back with the entire team intact at the Power 5, Power 6 level, and was not the preseason. I can't ever remember that happening, let alone that team not being the consensus number one team in the country, and that's what I think UCLA should be because this isn't some team that got plucky and lucky at the end of the season. This was a team that lost late in the year to other good teams, USC, Oregon, Oregon State, Colorado, were all NCAA tournament teams. And on top of that, not only does UCLA bring back talent, they bring back NBA talent. They have three guys on their roster that could be first-round picks this year. Peyton Watson, a freshman who wasn't on the team last year. Jaime Jaquez, a forward who's a junior. And Johnny Juzang, a forward who is a junior. And so I bring it up to say, it's not as though UCLA does not have uh, talent coming back from that Final Four team. They bring back everybody, plus add a top recruiting class. I don't get how they're not number one. That's a little nitpicky on my part. On top of that, I would add, I think Michigan's maybe a spot or two too high. They did lose a lot in their backcourt, a lot of shooting. On top of that, I would say, I do think Kentucky's probably a little bit underrated at number 10. I had them at, at number seven, and, and I do, when I look at Kentucky, I, I do kind of see a team that I think could be much improved this year. They have to prove it, but all the pieces are there. I like, obviously, not only the players they brought in, but the reshuffling of the staff. So ultimately, when you, get to, get, when you go through the top 10, I don't really have that much to nitpick about who was ranked where, uh, except for Arkansas, which we're going to get into in a minute. So with that said, let's get into the overrated, underrated teams in the top 25. And let's start with a team that I do think is a little bit overrated. Drum roll, please. Number 12, the Memphis Tigers. And it's so funny because every time that I talk about Memphis, Memphis fans think that I hate Penny Hardaway and I hate Memphis. That couldn't be the furthest thing from the truth. One, I think he's great for college basketball. I've heard if anything else, he's a great recruiter. College basketball would not have Imani Bates this year, and I don't know if they'd have Jalen Duran if it wasn't for Penny Hardaway. Instead, they're both on campus. Now, Jalen Duran probably would have come to college, whether it was Miami or Kentucky, but at the end of the day, he's good for the sport of college basketball. College basketball needs more characters, okay? college That's one thing college football does insanely well. They create these goofy, crazy, quirky characters. Mike Leach, Nick Saban, Coach O, Lane Kiffin, Dabo. College basketball needs more of those guys, and so I'm glad Penny Hardaway is at the college level. On top of that, what I would also say is I think I have defended him as a coach, but at a certain point, you do have to deliver. When you say, I want all the smoke, and the only thing you've delivered so far is an NIT championship, I've got to be a little bit critical as a media commentator. And so why do I believe that they're overranked at number 12? What I will say, I don't think it's crazy egregious. I actually had them at number 15. But what I would also say is that, you know, I, I, I really struggled to get them to number 15. And I put a few teams that I actually probably like a little bit more ahead of them. Yes, Memphis returns very talented players, and I think that's important. DeAndre Williams, that team completely flipped when he started playing last season. Lester Quinones is really good. Landers Nolly is really good. But ultimately, let's be honest. We all know why Memphis is ranked number 12 in the country, and it isn't because of those guys. It is because of the additions of Jalen Duran and Imani Bates. And so when I look at them being ranked number 12 in the country, what we're essentially saying is the two guys that put them over the top was a 17-year-old, Imani Bates, who will be 17 for the first half of this year at Memphis, and Jalen Duran, who's a really good player, but as we know, very rarely do elite a freshman or freshman play at an elite level where they elevate an entire program. It has happened before, Cade Cunningham, Evan Mobley, but those are very unique instances. And so when you're talking about Jalen Duran as the fourth, fifth, sixth best freshman in this class behind Apollo Bancaro, a Chet Holmgren, maybe even his own teammate, Amani Bates, I don't know if those guys are guys that can elevate an entire program. 
Now, that is my biggest concern with Memphis is, one, you're putting a lot on the shoulders of two kids that have never played college basketball. And on top of that, I would say chemistry is going to be a question for this team, and it has been a question for Penny Hardaway over over his first three years at Memphis. They have had a lot of guys transfer in and out of that program, and as I look at that team, there are 13 guys on scholarship, and all 13 believe they should play this season. I know that right now everybody's saying the right things and doing the right things, and I'm not criticizing any player or even any coach, but when it comes game time, when it comes time to tip off, there's going to be 13 guys that all think they should be the leading scorer, the leading shot taker, the leading playmaker, and there's going to be several people at the end of the bench that just are not very happy. That is the nature of the sport of basketball, and that is why so many coaches, Jay Wright has been very public about this, Calipari has been very public about this, they don't fill all 13 scholarships because you cannot keep everybody happy in college basketball. That concerns me. On top of that, how concerning should it be that, again, Two freshmen are going to have major marquee roles on this roster. How are the older guys that were there all summer, I've said it before, that were running in the heat of Memphis in the middle of the summer, working out all year, then Imani Bates and Jalen Duren show up, how are they going to respond to those kids? Again, right now everything seems fine, but how will it be going forward? Finally, I'll also say this. Penny Hardaway sold Imani Bates on, I'm going to turn you into a point guard, you're putting the ball in the hands of a 17-year-old and saying, go be a f- top 15 team in the country. I'm not saying they can't be there by the end of the year. I don't see it right now. In terms of a team that I think is underranked, I just talked about them, the Arkansas Razorbacks. And it's really funny because as I record here on Tuesday, the SEC media poll came out. They have Arkansas third in the SEC, which kind of falls in line with, with how the AP has it all shaking out. But on top of that, it's also worth noting, Arkansas doesn't have a single player on the All-SEC first team. And so that is why I think Arkansas is underranked, because I think people are undervaluing just how talented this roster is. It's really funny, right? Because you go back to last year, and everybody talks about Moses Moody on this team. Everybody talks about Justin Smith, a graduate transfer, all those guys. You know who were the best players down the stretch last year for Arkansas? Devo Davis, a guard, and Jalen Williams, a forward, who are both back this year. They weren't necessarily the two best players, but they were as important to that Elite Eight run for Arkansas as anybody. And so when I look at Arkansas, I see a team that made an Elite Eight. I see a coach that is very aggressive in the transfer portal and Eric Musselman and his staff. And the one thing about Eric Musselman, it's a lot like John Calipari. It's a lot like Coach K. Very rarely do these coaches get to bring back players for a second or third year in the system, only that's exactly what Arkansas has right now. So you have Devo Davis and Jalen Williams, two major contributors on an Elite Eight team last year. And for people who forgot, Arkansas made its first Elite Eight since 1994 last season in the NCAA tournament. On top of that, you also have J.D. Note, another very important player. You have a a player in K.K. Robinson, who was a sit-out last year because of injury, former top 50 recruit. And then Musselman crushed it in the transfer portal again. Chris Likes, Audis Tony, averaged 15-plus per game at ACC schools last year. One transferred from Miami, one transferred from Pitt. On top of that, Stanley Amude was a two-time all-conference player at South Dakota, averaged over 20 a game. You have a kid named Trey Wade who transferred in from, uh, from Wichita State, excuse me, Jackson Robinson, former highly rated kid, transferred in from Texas A&M. This is a loaded team, a talented team, and I believe that they are completely underrated in the first AP poll coming up, coming in at number 16. Here's another overrated team in the first AP poll, Ohio State. Ohio State, I just don't see it. So Ohio State is ranked number 18 in the AP poll. I didn't have them in my top 25 at all coming out of the summer, and the reason why is pretty clear. They lost their entire starting backcourt. Dwayne Washington was a starter at guard for them. He was their leading scorer. He was their leading playmaker. He was the reason that they were the number one, two, three, four, five team in the country for most of the season last year. At the NBA draft deadline, he decides to leave. C.J. Young, a guard, their leading assist guy, their point guard, their playmaker, he also decides to leave. And so now you have a front court with some really talented pieces. They return a player named E.J. Liddell, who is really talented. They return a player named Zed Key, who I thought played really really well down the stretch they have a freshman wing named Malachi Branham who may be a one and done but when I look at this team where does the guard play come from I don't see it I don't get it because of it I think Ohio State is way overrated at 18 
I think you can make an argument for the back half of the top 25, back end of the top 25, 24, 25, 23, somewhere in there. I don't see them as a top 20 team right now, though. I think they are wildly overrated at number 18. On top of that, let's get to a few more underrated teams. First of all, the North Carolina Tar Heels. They came in at number 19 in the AP poll. I had them in my top 25 at number 12. And here's why. When Roy Williams retired, we all had questions about Hubert Davis, myself certainly included. But what I would say about North Carolina is this. I thought Hubert Davis did just about as well as any coach could during the offseason. He retained the players that he had to retain. Caleb Love, a guard that could potentially, I believe, be a lottery pick and an all-ACC kind of guy this year. Armando Baycott, their best guy down low. But on top of that, what I really like about what Hubert Davis did was this. He put his own stamp on the program, and this is how he did it. For years, Roy Williams has played two big guys, two physical low-post guys. Kennedy Meeks, uh, Sean May back in the day. You go on and on down the list. And when Hubert Davis took over, he said, look, I respect the heck out of Coach Williams, but I want to play a more modern system where I have big guys that can step out and make shots. I don't want all my big guys clogging the lane and playing five feet from the basket. So who does he go sign? Brady Manick, a four-year player at Oklahoma. Dawson Garcia, a former McDonald's All-American who played last year at Marquette. Those are two guys that can stretch the floor, two guys that can be difference makers for North Carolina this year, and it adds a different effect to the team because now not only can you stretch the floor at the four spot, but it opens up driving lanes for Caleb, Lane, Caleb Love, their lead guard. So now I believe he will have more room to operate. He will have more shooting around him. They have two guards named Kerwin Walton and R.J. Davis, who I think will be really good. I just truly believe this North Carolina team might be the best team in the ACC when it's all said and done. I had them at number 12. They were grossly, grossly underranked at number 19. You know who else was grossly underranked? How about my UConn Huskies? And no, I'm not going to bark like a dog when I talk about the Georgia Bulldogs, but my UConn Huskies at number 24. And I don't believe this is a homer pick. I had them at number 19 in my poll, and here's why. Last year, UConn was an NCAA tournament team. Great for UConn to be back in the tournament first time under Dan Hurley, and I believe they are building something special. What was interesting, though, is how the season played out. They had this star guard named James Booknight, who ended up being a lottery pick now with the Charlotte Hornets. He was Mr. Everything for UConn early in the season, but as the season went on, he got hurt. And when he got hurt, an interesting thing happened. First, UConn really struggled. Couldn't score the ball, couldn't put the ball in the basket, this, that, the other thing. Then, as time went on and they realized, we're not getting this guy back anytime soon, other guys started to step up. And then in a weird twist, James Booknight comes back and he doesn't really fit in with these new guys who now all of a sudden have more confidence. That's not a criticism of the coaching. That's not a criticism of James Booknight, not a criticism of his teammates. The, the pieces just were never really the same when he came back. Why do I bring that up? It is because of the fact that now all of those other guys are back. So UConn is one of the fascinating teams in college basketball because they really didn't have anything major crazy happen this offseason in the program. They had a couple guys transfer out that were grad transfers that weren't going to play anyway. They didn't take in any new transfers. They had their recruiting class lined up. So it wasn't this busy, crazy offseason like you had at Kentucky where they took three or four transfers, like you had at Arkansas where they took four or five transfers, like you had at, uh, I don't know, wherever, fill in the blank. North Carolina took a few, had a coaching change. UConn's basically returning intact with a bunch of guys that gained confidence late in the season. They have a lead guard named R.J. Cole, who I really like, Tyrese Martin, uh, a scoring combo guy who I think could be their leading scorer, big guy down low named Adama Sonogo, who I believe will be one of the most improved players in the Big East, a Andre Jackson, a, a star wing who needs to figure it out, but man, oh man, does he have NBA-level athleticism, and also a player named Akuk Akuk, who was hurt two years ago, came back last year, wasn't the same player. You add in a really good recruiting class. I believe UConn is underranked. I had them at number 19. They're ranked number 24 in the preseason poll. This is going to be a deep, versatile, tough team. And again, they return essentially intact. A few other teams uh, that I have, uh, you know, I'll just go through them really quick. Texas Tech, unranked in the AP poll. I actually had them at number 20. Here's what you need to know. Chris Beard goes to Texas, but they bring back one of the best players in the Big 12 in TJ Shannon. Also a lead guard named Kevin McCuller. Now he's got to stay healthy, and they crushed the portal. 
Kevin O'Banner, a star out of Oral Roberts, part of that Elite Eight or Sweet 16 team that lost to Arkansas. Sadar Calhoun from Florida State. Davion Warren. Uh, Bryson Williams, who averaged a double-double at UTEP. I bring all this up to say... Texas Tech, I don't believe, will take as big of a drop, as big of a fall as we expect. They're going to have two of the best players in the Big 12, maybe three of them, in Kevin McCuller, TJ Shannon, and Kevin O'Banner. And finally, I'll also say, kind of in the same vein, uh, kind of in the same vein, Oklahoma State, I truly believe, is actually going to be better than people expect. Yes, they lost some guy named Cade Cunningham, friend of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, by the way. Uh, Cade Cunningham, the number one pick in the draft. But they literally return everybody else. And as I've said a million times, by the end of the season last year, they were one of the 10 best teams in college basketball. And they lose Cade Cunningham, but they bring back a lot of guys that have a lot of experience. They added four marquee transfers, including Musa Cisse and Bryce Thompson, both former McDonald's All-Americans. That is my thought on the AP Top 25. With that said, you know, let's wrap up. I was going to take a quick break, but but I think it's just time to get out of here. Uh, no break, and we will get to what is quickly becoming America's favorite segment, where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. And I think most of you kind of understand the concept of the segment, but it's pretty straightforward. Yes, I stole it from my buddy Colin Cowherd, but you guys love it. And the idea is pretty simple. Colin does it on his show every Monday. I have adopted it for this show. Thank you, Colin, for letting me borrow this, buddy. Uh, but essentially what it is is, is that... You know, as a sports, you know, personality like I am, media member, whatever you want to call it, I do a lot of things where I put a lot of opinions out. And sometimes I get them totally right, and I'm awesome, and I pat myself on the back. Nobody loves patting themselves on the back more than Torres does. But then there's a lot of other stuff that I get awfully wrong, awfully regularly. And so this is a segment to kind of keep me in check. Checks and balances, if you will, on the Aaron Torres podcast, because I get a lot of stuff wrong, and sometimes I got to take the walk of shame. Sometimes I got to take the L, and sometimes I got to admit that I just whiffed on some stuff. And so, with that said, let's get to this segment of where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. Where Aaron was right, I said during the Kentucky LSU game two Saturdays ago, that felt like Coach O's tarmac game. What I meant by that, you guys all remember, Lane Kiffin, if you remember whatever it was, 2014, I believe, 2013, if you watched that game where USC ultimately fired Lane Kiffin, you said, I don't know how he survives this. This is really bad. They're getting destroyed by Arizona State. Flies home, gets fired on the tarmac by USC's administration. And I said, this feels like Coach O's tarmac game because you cannot survive as the LSU head coach getting destroyed by Kentucky. You can lose every once in a while to a team that you're not supposed to. But when Kentucky is the physically dominant and more impressive team, it kind of shows like, you know what? It's time to go, Coach O. And so I said that was his tarmac game. I did not believe that he would survive. And ultimately, while he did survive until this past Saturday against Florida with no news about his coaching job, what we later found out is that when the firing was announced and a press conference was had on Sunday, Scott Woodward and Coach O admitted, yeah, after the Kentucky game, we began having conversations about what the future of this program looked like and what the future would look like without Coach O. Coach O is obviously getting his full salary. He's getting his full buyout. But I just bring it up to say that while the news wasn't official until uh, eight days after the Kentucky loss, the fact remains the Kentucky loss is what did him in. It was ultimately his tarmac game. He could not survive. Coach O, tarmac, Torres, where Aaron was right. Now, where Aaron was wrong. And what I was wrong about was Coach O in general. And during that national championship run, it, it's weird, right? Because after the national championship run, I said, I could see this falling apart quickly because you lose Joe Burrow, you lose Joe Brady, you lose Dave Aranda. At the same time, I thought that Coach O had really kind of changed as a human being, right? He was evolved. During the 2019 season, you read all these articles about how he had changed practice, how he had changed nutrition, how he had changed uh, recovery, how he was bringing in all these experts, how he plucked Joe Brady out of the NFL, and how he was evolved as a guy. As we found out the last couple weeks, he really wasn't, or at the very least, 2019 was the peak of that. After 2019, he regressed. After 2019, he went back to making poor coaching hires. He could not retain this, the staff that he wanted. Um, personally, you've read the stories. I'm not going to make jokes about it. He was a single man, but he gets divorced. He starts letting, you know, maybe females become more prominently involved in his life. And like I said, 
I believe that Coach O was the guy that had evolved from the Ole Miss days, ripping off his shirt, doing all that stuff, and maybe to a degree he has, but at the end of the day, he was not that elite upper-tier coach. I thought maybe there was at least a possibility that he built a pseudo-regular contender to challenge Alabama in the West. That did not happen. Coach O is out. Where Aaron was right. I told you on last year's episodes, if you listen back to last year, when DJ filled in for Trevor Lawrence in those two games, I said, I like him. I just don't know, though. If you really watch those games, you could see he wasn't very accurate. He had this huge arm, but he throws the ball so hard. He has no touch. He's trying to throw the ball through every wide receiver. And I said, you know, Clemson has had some really good quarterbacks the last seven, eight years with Deshaun Watson and Trevor Lawrence. And I'm not saying he won't be good, which we'll get into in a minute. I said, I don't think he's going to be that upper, upper, upper level quarterback. And so while you can blame a lot of things on a lot of people with Clemson, I hate to say it, but some of it starts with DJ. Now, some of it's the O-line. Because there's no O-line, you can't run the ball. I think some of it falls on Dabo Sweeney. He refuses to hit the portal, and he's lost a lot of players to the portal without replacing them. But at the end of the day, if if DJ was playing at a Trevor Lawrence to Sean Watson level, we might not even know about it. So he is completing right now 55% of his passes, 5.6 yards per completion, and through six games, four touchdowns, three interceptions. You're not going to win very many games when your quarterback has thrown four touchdowns and three interceptions through um, through a span of six games. Now, in his defense, again, he's been sacked 12 times. He may not have elite uh, wide receiver talent around him, but a lot of this just falls on him. I don't believe he's the guy. I don't believe he's the next Trevor. I don't believe that he is the next. Um, I don't believe that he's the next Deshaun Watson. We'll see if he can at least elevate Clemson next year back to an ACC caliber championship contender. But I'll tell you this, Clemson is an underdog going into this pit game this weekend, and I think it's with good reason. Where Aaron was wrong. So you go back to my preseason predictions. Georgia was my national champion. How about them dogs? That looks good right now. I had Ohio State in my national championship game. That is starting to look okay. I had Oklahoma in the playoff. That's starting to look okay. I also had Clemson, though. And so while I was right on DJ not being elite, I thought that the rest of the talent at Clemson would be enough to overcome okay but not elite quarterback play. And I also said, who in the ACC is going to beat them? Well, as it turns out, when you don't have Trevor Lawrence and when you don't have the personnel that you've had along the offensive line, you have injuries, Brian Brzee, star uh, linebacker, uh, defensive end is out for the year all of a sudden you get exposed. And so where I was wrong, I was right on DJ, but I was wrong on, I thought Clemson was just so much more talented than everybody else in the ACC that it did not matter. Uh, Yeah, I was wrong about that. They're four and two. Could have easily lost their last two games to Boston College and Syracuse. They are actually 0-6 against the spread this year. One of the few teams in college football that has not covered a single spread. Um, And so, listen, I was right on that one. Where Aaron, no, I was wrong on that one, excuse me, because I believe that Clemson would be able to overcome everything when they really can't. Start to wrap here where Aaron was right. Did you see this story that Pete Thamel, Yahoo Sports, put out on the UConn coaching football job? And let me say this, I'm not criticizing Pete Thamel here, but if you read it, it essentially read like a press release. He interviewed the AD at UConn, he interviewed the governor of Connecticut, Ned Lamont, and the reason that it was very clear that this article was put out was because UConn wants America to know that they are not going to the FCS level and that they are fully invested in being a functioning college football program. I told you this when it happened. So many of you, when Randy Edsel left, I said, they say, oh, just go down to the FCS. Uh, quit trying to even compete at the, D- at the FBS level. I said, that's not going to happen. One, studies have shown that when you go from the FBS to FCS, uh, donations just plummet. Fans want to compete at the highest level, even if you're not really competing like you're at UConn. And so there's been other schools that have dropped to FCS and the donations start to trickle away. Also, being at the FBS level for UConn allows them to schedule the Ohio States, the Michigans, the Tennessees, schools like that, um, and get big paychecks, which help the overall health of the athletic department. But ultimately, what I said was this. I said, look, I'm not being a UConn homer here, but what I am telling you definitively is this. While they might be the worst team in FBS football right now, it is far from one of the worst jobs in the FBS. Think about it. 
first of all, they play an independent schedule. To the credit of their AD, Dave Benedict, he has been able to get some real teams on the schedule at home this year. Purdue is ranked in the top 25 right now. They played at UConn this year, okay? How many schools can't even sniff a top 25 team coming to their, conf- to, to their home venue out of conference? Quite a few, quite a lot. On top of it, it's a state school. The facilities are great. The financial support is great. And they're going to pay well. And so I'm not saying that the UConn job is LSU, USC, Penn State, Clemson, Florida State. I'm not even saying it's Kentucky, Mississippi State. But what I am saying is this. It's going to pay well. You're going to play real teams. You're going to get good games at home. And in the transfer portal era, you can turn that program around pretty quick from the worst team in FBS to a team that I believe um, can at the very least go 6-6 six and six and go to a bowl game. And if you can do that, UConn fans will love you forever. They will support you forever. I believe this is a decent job that will get decent candidates, but it is not the worst job in FBS like many people made it out to be. Pete Thamel, his article essentially confirmed UConn is committed to big-time football, as I told you. Where Aaron was wrong, Spencer Rattler. So a couple things on Spencer Rattler. One, if you look at his stats, they're pretty good. And I said it's easy to criticize him, but I do not believe that he is the main reason that they stink. They can't run the ball right now. The defense isn't as been good as advertised. Don't blame all this on Spencer Rattler. Uh, yeah, I think I was wrong on that. Spencer Rattler out, Caleb Williams in. Oklahoma might be the second best team in the country behind Georgia after that move was made. Um, so I was wrong on that. And then I was also wrong on the idea that I thought Lincoln Riley was going to try to play both quarterbacks as much as he could. It was clear to me watching that game, it's Caleb Williams' job. I don't know if Spencer Rattler has essentially said, I don't want to play with the second team. I do not want to play in mop-up time. Um, I don't know if that is what has happened, but there was an opportunity to put Spencer Rattler in when the game was out of hand and get him real reps, and Lincoln Riley refused to do it. And so to me, what that says, this is Caleb Williams' job going forward, and now what will be fascinating is what we talked about on the show last week. What is the future of Spencer Rattler at Oklahoma? Is he going to opt out of the season, prepare for the NFL? I don't think he'll be a first, second round pick, so I don't think that's probably the smartest move. And if he does decide to transfer, it becomes a fascinating transfer deal. I've already started to beat the bushes on some teams. Uh, Again, he's from Arizona. I think Arizona State could be in play, depending on what happens with Herm Edwards and his staff. There's a few teams that make sense, but Spencer Rattler, you know, we got to call a spade a spade. They look completely different with Caleb Williams under center, completely different team. All right, I think that's it for this episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Uh, I got to get out of here because I got stuff to do. It is a busy Wednesday. This show is late, and so I'm going to get out of here. Before we do, make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres uh, Podcast, iTunes, the Podcast Addict app, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. That's about it. I will say College Hoops is coming. I got some good guests lined up that you will enjoy. But in the meantime, it is time for me to get out of here. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. I will be back on Friday with another great edition of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anytime anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.